thank you for joining us for the next episode in the Byman's Archives. I'm John Crocker, and today I'm joined by media and information lawyer Tamsin Allen to discuss the Cambridge Analytica case. Could you outline the case for us? Yes. So the first time I ever heard the name Cambridge Analytica was in November 2017, I think it was, when I saw a young man waiting in reception with dyed hair and jewellery, looking nervous. And I went to start talking to him. He was extremely articulate, really clear. He'd brought with him a laptop full of evidence, but the story he was telling me was almost unbelievable. He was describing how a military contractor had set up an organisation designed to interfere with elections, that it had actually interfered with elections around the world, that it was seeking to put in power people who didn't have a democratic mandate, it, that it was stealing information about people and targeting them, finding out their deepest personality traits, and then using deceit to target them with untrue information often, to either make them vote or stop them from voting or make them vote a certain way. This was incredibly shocking. And I spoke to him for days on end. And every time I spoke to him, he brought new information to the table. The next time he started telling me about the Russian connection, how people connected to this company, Cambridge Analytica and SCL, its parent company, had very close connections to Russia and to the Russian state, how the chief researcher who designed the software and the system that was used for targeting called himself Dr. Spectre and was a Russian who traveled frequently to Russia with an unsecured laptop, how there were other people connected to the Trump organization and to Russia involved in this story. The next time he told me, an offshoot of the same company, the IT arm, as it were, the data scientists who'd worked on Cambridge Analytica and who started life as more or less their only customer with a, an intellectual property agreement, so they were more or less the same thing, had also worked with Vote Leave on the Brexit campaign. He then introduced me to a young friend of his who had been working for Vote Leave on a youth wing called Believe. It became completely clear from what I was hearing that Believe was not a separate organisation, but part of Vote Leave, but it had been used to increase the spending limit so that in effect Vote Leave had overspent by nearly a million pounds, that money nearly all going to this same digital strategist targeters who were using the techniques that he'd explained had taken place in the Trump um, campaign. So as soon as I'd digested this information, we started strategizing together about what to do with it. Chris had first come to me from Channel 4, who were making a documentary in which they were going to set up a scenario in which they hoped to get Alexander Nix and the Cambridge Analytica group to reveal their true motives and their true modus operandi, which they did very, very successfully in an incredible piece of undercover filming. Chris had been working with Carol Cadwallader at The Guardian, who was crafting his story into a digestible narrative, which was an incredibly difficult thing to do because it was so complex. 
was complex politically, it was complex factually, it was complex technically in terms of information about data. And she was doing an extraordinary job in making it something which made sense. But Chris was worried about his personal risk. He was dealing with some extremely unpleasant people with connections to even more unpleasant people and regimes. He knew that his opponents may include some of the wealthiest institutions and most powerful institutions in the world, including Facebook and the Trump Organization. And he was worried not only about being sued, but about his personal safety. So we worked on all of these things. Our first priority was to report what he'd found to the right authorities, the police, the information commissioner, to the American authorities. We wanted to do this in a way which didn't diminish the impact of the story. So we had to persuade those authorities to receive the information and do what they had to do in coordination with the press. We also wanted to make sure that the press, who each had their own agenda, agreed to coordinate the story coming out so that nobody was trying to scoop anybody else. Again, it was a question of curating the story for maximum impact. We then had a series of meetings with the information commissioner herself and with Damon Collins, who was chair of the Media and Culture and Sport Committee, which was investigating these kind of issues at the same time. So we went from meeting to meeting explaining in Chris's inimitable style with complete clarity what was happening, but also making sure that we did so in a way which kept him safe and kept the story clean and ready for publication. At the same time, we were instructing counsel to advise on the possibility of a complaint in relation to the overspending at vote leave. So we instructed Helen Mantfield and Ben Silverstone at Matrix to do an opinion, which we would then provide to the Electoral Commission, and because the Electoral Commission had already investigated and found that there was nothing wrong, we think that they hadn't had all the information and that they hadn't quite got the law right. So we decided we needed to guide them more closely. And so we were working at that point on this opinion to go to the Electoral Commission. So there were a number of balls in the air. They all came into the air at once in a beautiful arc in March 2018, when first one story, then the other story came out simultaneously in The Observer, New York Times, Washington Post. The Information Commissioner raided Facebook's offices. But just before the story came out, I shouldn't forget to say that, of course, in accordance with proper journalistic practice, The Guardian had written to Facebook and others offering them a right to reply because they were going to be criticised. Facebook panicked. This multi-billion pound company, faced with a story from a whistleblower about them allowing enormous numbers of their customers' data to get out, rather than saying, this looks terrible, we'll investigate and do something about it, issued a press release in which they banned Chris and Dr. Spectre from engagement and um, from having a Facebook account or a WhatsApp account or an Instagram account and criticised them. Now, this, of course, was an absolute windfall because it was a press release sent directly into the handheld devices of millions and millions of people all over the world. We couldn't have designed it better ourselves. We immediately responded to say this is an outrage. I had conversations with Facebook's general counsel in which I said this is absurd and ridiculous and you're completely wrong and we're going to publish. 
take it back. And we did indeed publish. And it was a sort of casebook study of how not to respond when you're asked for a right to reply. Facebook's share price went through the floor. For everybody's interest had first been piqued by their own press release when they saw the stories were headline news across the world for weeks. Chris then was invited to give evidence to Parliament in public. We went to Washington twice for him to give evidence to the Senate, and he also gave evidence in private to the Intelligence Committee about Russian connections. It was a high octane. It was a very, very serious, serious issues, and people at the very highest levels of American government were very, very interested in what he had to say. And against all of that, there was the background of Facebook flailing around, trying to blame Chris, who in fact was the hero of the hour. And it didn't really calm down until the summer of that year, after which the consequences started to play out. What impact do you think the case had? Facebook became persona non grata for a lot of young people, and that was really the start of decline of people using Facebook, I think. There were prosecutions, the vote leave were convicted, the National Crime Agency was investigating the people involved. There was a massive backlash from various people on the right who were trying desperately to protect vote leave and protect their own positions. Cambridge Analytica became a byword for corruption. People started looking at data differently, started looking at the role of tech companies differently. I think it had a massive impact on public understanding Politically, the government in power now was put there by Vote Leave, who were in cahoots with the Cambridge Analytica Connected Company and used the same techniques. So that is not what we hoped for. But nevertheless, legislation now going through Parliament on online harms and understanding across America of the risks of personal data being obtained by social media companies and given out to malign actors was exposed. Why do you think that Chris came to see you when he did? He left the company in 2014. He needed to, he was very young at the time he was working at Cambridge Analytica. It was his first proper job and he'd finished a PhD in fashion and he'd been headhunted and offered this job. It was very exciting. It took him a while to process what had happened he started talking to people about it probably 18 months after he left. So there was no particular reason why then. It's just that it took that long for him. He was also very scared because he'd walked off with documents which he was worried about having. He was very worried about exposing people in high places and very well-connected people and very dangerous people. And he was really worried about it. He started talking to Carol under a pseudonym. And to begin with, she started publishing articles which didn't reveal who he was. So the March 2018 decision was the result of a very long process of coming out, as it were, as a whistleblower. It was probably less than 18 months after he left. But it was a long, slow process of revealing the information, crafting it into a narrative, and for him to then take the plunge of deciding that he would be brave enough to put a face to the story, which is, in the end, what made it tellable. What was it like to be involved in a case that had such global interest? It was intense. We had 
absolutely constant media inquiries and requests for Chris to speak to people. He was under enormous pressure. Strange things were happening. He had someone banging at his door. He had his laptop stolen when he was at a hotel. He was followed in the street. There was somebody took a photograph of him coming to this office and then sent it to him anonymously. So there were all sorts of weird things happening. He was worried about those things, but he was determined he wanted to make the story come out, but very keen to make sure he didn't speak to the wrong people or that every time he spoke about it, he did the best possible job of explaining what was happening. We, at one point, decided we would hold a press conference to try and marshal some of this interest in one it soon became very clear that the world's press were descending on the press conference and that they all wanted to quiz Chris and Shamir and me and it would be very very difficult and not the best way to make the story come out so I fielded that press conference by giving everybody a much more mundane explanation of what had been happening than they'd been hoping for We had days in which the entire office was full of people wanting to find out more. We had the whole of Europe, all the European representatives of the press in one room, which was interesting. We had day after day where we did nothing but speak to the media about the story. We had to be careful that every time the story was told, Chris wasn't exposing himself to the risk of proceedings but that the story was told in a way which had maximum impact and was very clear. And that was the tension throughout the work I was doing, how to tell the story well and safely. And I think that's what Chris did. Can you tell us more about Shami as well? The weekend after the Facebook story had been exposed, We then prepared to expose the Vote Leave story. This was another huge story in which we were exposing to the public the fact that there had been cheating in the Brexit referendum, that the Vote Leave campaign had overspent. Spending limits are there for a reason. Any group which spends more than their limit is getting an unfair advantage. Not only were they spending more than their limit, but they were using very, very questionable methods of targeting people using their Facebook or other social media histories and profiles to provide information to them. And it now turns out a lot of that information, of course, was made up. So again, in the few days before the articles were published, the journalists went to the people at Vote Leave to give them the opportunity to reply as it's normal journalistic practices. And we were prepared for this, but what we didn't expect was that Stephen Parkinson, who is now at number 10, but who was at Vote Leave, wrote back to the papers in response to the right to reply, suggesting that Shamir was a bitter ex. He'd been in a relationship with Shamir, and he was suggesting that Shamir was motivated to expose the cheating at Vote Leave for personal reasons. Now, this was then given to Dom Cummings, who put it on his blog and then reported in the press. It wasn't just any old story. This story, as Stephen Parkinson knew for certain, outed Shamir's gay relationship to his family. Shamir comes from Pakistan originally. His family didn't know 
about his sexuality. And he was entitled to choose when his family knew. Not only that, it put him at risk and members of his family in Pakistan at risk of reprisals and attack. And his sisters were in Pakistan, his grandfather, he was extremely worried about his family. So we were all in a conference room in the office when it emerged that this had gone public. And I just remember seeing Shamir in a little ball on the floor in the office. He was absolutely devastated by this cruelty and he could barely speak trying to process what this meant. And every few minutes he'd think of another consequence. And of course, one of the major consequences is that that important moment was robbed from him and he could never have it back. He was forced onto the back foot. He was forced to have to try and explain himself and apologize for who he is to his wider family. The right-wing press then tried to make the Vote Leave story all about a lover's tiff. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Shamir is a highly principled young man who was determined to expose wrongdoing. And they kicked him in a way that was incredibly hurtful. And I think that's absolutely unforgivable. Looking back at the case, what do you think the future is for social media and the regulation of these channels? Well, I don't, I've no idea what the future for regulation of social media is. I know that the current proposals don't go anywhere near far enough, that there's still an underappreciation of the power of social media and of the malign purposes to which it can be put. There's an underappreciation that social media companies are more powerful than national governments and national governments might try to regulate them, but they are facing something that's bigger than them. It's not bothered by borders. It's not bothered by tax regimes. It's not bothered by parliaments. So it's very difficult to see how social media can be effectively regulated to protect against the sort of damage that it's already done. Some of the things Chris were talking about, for example, interference in the Nigerian election where a fake video was created of people being murdered in the street. This was intended to be sent to supporters of the Muslim candidate for president to suggest this is what his supporters were doing. But in Trinidad, there was some sort of minority report pre-crime proposal being developed by Cambridge Analytica, in which they'd look at private browsing history, work out who they thought was most likely to commit crimes and lock them up. It was even called Minority Report. What went on in the Trump campaign was just one small example of what went on around the world using the information that people willingly put into the ether without understanding how it's ultimately going to be used. I mean, you think, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to be sold a raincoat because I bought another one. That's just shopping. What does it matter? But what matters is that algorithms can build up a picture of you that is so complete that it probably knows you better than anybody else knows you and will know your vulnerabilities, will know how to make you do things without your realising. No one wants to think that they're vulnerable to that. No voter wants to think that they were influenced. But when social media giants are whispering things in your ear, there's no way for it to be tested. We have a problem. And we can see the way that problem's working at the moment with anti-vaccine disinformation and with a lack of 
proper energy being put in by the social media giants to control it. Thank you, Tamsin, and thank you for joining us as we look at another case in Byman's history.